Perspectives of history, empires and kings, the common people throughout history, the struggle of civilization. It's Historical Intentions with Joe Newton. There is a tide in the affairs of men, which, taken at the flood, leads on to fortune, omitted all the voyage of their life, is bound in shallows and in miseries. On such a full sea are we now afloat, and we must take the current when it serves, or lose our ventures. Julius Caesar, Act 4, Scene 3, from Shakespeare. This tide in the affairs of men, which can lead on to fortune, how much is the tide shaped by what we can do? If the answer is nearly all of it, then what is the best way to direct the current? Perhaps the easiest way is to have a single person in charge. It seems to come up quite a lot in organizational systems. You have CEOs at the head of companies. You have a single person in charge of quite a lot of things. Who among us would be happy if we took our car into the mechanic, and instead of saying you will receive a mechanic, they said we will put this in front of our mechanic committee, and they will decide what to do. Just by the mere nature of that, instead of paying for one mechanic, now you're paying for 20. It seems that at the end of the day, you really need a person in charge to make a decision. Committees are interesting, but they come with their own vices. They have a lot of discussion. They may not come to a consensus. They take time. Whereas a single person can know what they want and go and do it. And if there is indeed a tide in the affairs of men, having one person direct the tide will be much more significant. It will have a large impact. The tide will be stronger. It will go faster. Whereas if you have a committee shifting the tides of men, it may take a while. It may take a more moderate direction because you have to compromise. Whereas you can have extreme turns by a single person. If you think about the beginning of government, really, after people stopped being tribes, the first system they really came up with was a monarch. You had one person in charge, and that was probably the first idea. The first reaction anyone has when there's a problem is generally to either put a committee in charge of it today, but if you sit down and you really want something solved, you put one person in charge of it. What could possibly go wrong? Give them full control of absolutely everything in the state. And I think a large part of early history is just the playings out of the tides and the affairs of men when there is only a single person in charge of the state. I think part of the reason people get so enthused about the presidential elections here in the United States is we kind of view the executive branch as that kind of thing. It's the closest thing to having a strong man in office to change the course of things. If you really disagree with how the Senate is operating, you put a president in there that's completely contrary to what they're doing, and he has the power to veto, he has the power to change policy somewhat. But of course, one of the key differences there is that he was elected in a democratic process. And of course, I'm oversimplifying what people like the executive office. There's a whole lot of reasons. Part of it might be that it's just easier to have an opinion on issues that are on such a grand scale. It's well known, isn't it, that people vote much more for presidents than they do in local elections, even though the local elections will actually have more impact on our life, most likely. But people don't like to do that. It's harder to have an opinion about things that are so less played up. People don't talk about them as much. They're less attractive ideas. You don't get to vote on things like, should we go to war with this country? You don't vote on whether or not you should invade the county next door, though if you could, it would probably raise voter participation quite a bit. But this entire idea of the tension between a powerful person in office 
and democracy is a tension that's built into the system here in the United States quite a bit. If we journey back a ways to ancient Greece, that same tension didn't really exist. At times, they would choose to put people into positions because they also recognized that at times you just needed someone to take charge, particularly during wars, to do some of their decisions. You need a general in charge of troops, and it's very inefficient to have a democracy-based system leading an army because then you have to vote on every single thing they do. Should the troops settle down for the night or should we keep marching for another 15 minutes? Let's have a vote and discussion on it. And it would take two hours to get it done. And by that time, the decision's already irrelevant. So you can see why at times you do actually need a strong person. Even in ancient Greece, this was present. And I think when we think of ancient Greece, we tend to think of them as a democracy and a unified democracy. They didn't have any kind of tension in their system. It was just Greece. They were all Democrats. That wasn't exactly the case. Any society, the more you look into it, becomes less and less unified looking. In Greece, there were Democrats and there were oligarchs. You've probably heard of Plato. He was actually the son of aristocrats. In fact, some of Plato's relatives were part of the ruling oligarchy, and they were actually among the most violent and extremist members. They would kill Democrats and seize their property just to balance the budget. Plato was appalled, and his own family was the reason he did not engage in oligarchy politics, and indeed maybe the reason we know of Plato at all. If his family had been a bunch of moderate oligarchs, perhaps he would have never become a famous philosopher, or THE famous philosopher as far as most people are concerned. All philosophy, it is said, is just a footnote to Plato. He laid the foundations for all of Western philosophy and science. In Greece, the oligarchs' rule became so egregious that eventually the Democrats rose up and rebelled. In a series of dramatic battles that are well worth looking at, they beat the oligarchs. The Spartans, who had been occupying Athens, left and democracy was restored. There was a general amnesty, and peace was restored. So why wasn't Plato a Democrat? He wasn't an oligarch. So the natural thing for him to become would be a Democrat. The long and short of that story is that democracy in Athens killed Socrates. Plato became a spurned man. What was left in Athens for him? Put yourself in his position here. Your family are a bunch of violent sociopaths. The democracy that should be the best way to rule according to everyone else in the city just killed your mentor, a man you loved, the wisest man in Athens. Socrates was probably the love of Plato's life in a fatherly way. It's said that Socrates paid more attention to his students than he did his own sons. It would have been easy for Plato to give up, and he honestly probably did for a while. He probably traveled around the entire world at the time. It's thought he traveled to Italy, Sicily, Egypt, and Cyrene. I have this image of this depressed, lonely man in his 30s, traveling the world and trying to find peace, and maybe trying to find someone else like Socrates. He ended up studying math in Italy, geometry, geology, astronomy, and religion in Egypt. Remember, at this time, philosophers were not just studying an abstract philosophy that would impact no one. They were the scientists of their time. He also began writing around the time he was in Cyrene. He eventually came back to Athens in his 40s, as a Greek, I suppose, his devotion to civic service was intense, and probably the reason he came back. I'm speculating here, but I think his travels enhanced his philosophy and also gave him a sense of being able to grieve over his lost mentor and the spectacular evil that had happened. When he came back, he opened the first university in Europe, the Academy. In one form or another, it ran for 500 years. 
It was resurrected in the 5th century by Neoplatonists, but was shut down by Justinian I of Byzantium, who saw it as a threat to Christendom. The academy trained some great intellectuals, including Aristotle. As for Plato's later life, his troubles were not over. He became entangled in the politics of Syracuse, a city in Sicily. He was sold into slavery at one point, and then one of his disciples bought him and freed him from slavery. He was used to school a leader of the city to become a philosopher king, but was eventually held there against his will by his pupil. Perhaps he couldn't bear the thought of life without Plato. Eventually, Plato left Syracuse, and there was some political turmoil, which ended with another of Plato's disciples usurping the throne. The irony here is that this is perhaps the result of Plato's philosophy. Though Plato sought to have peace and a perfect system, when you train a class of persons to be rulers, which was part of the perfect system in Plato's mind, maybe it should be of no surprise when they all want to rule and are discontent when they are not the ones to rule. Plato died in his 80s, an extremely long life back then, and not bad even by today's standards. He spent his last days at his academy and writing. How Plato died is unknown, and there are a few theories on this. The one I personally subscribe to is that he died in his bed while a young Thracian girl played the flute to him. It's a fitting image of a man who is probably more qualified than most to be a king, but never became a king. But his legacy and death are longer lasting than most kings throughout history. The king of philosophy was dead, but he died with music to comfort him. A final note on Plato's life, he didn't write textbooks. He wrote dialogues. Today's teachers could probably learn from this, as people still read Plato's dialogues, but who reads a three-year-old textbook? Plato lived in the birthplace of democracy, a place celebrated for being the defender of Western civilization before Western civilization even came about. Now, we can understand from Plato's life why he didn't like democracy, but what did he actually say about democracy? Here's what he thought of the average person in a democracy, speaking through Socrates in his dialogues. Quote, He lives from day to day, indulging in the appetite of the hour, and sometimes he is lapped in drink and strains of the flute. Then he becomes a water drinker and tries to get thin. Then he takes a turn at gymnastics, sometimes idling and neglecting everything, then once more living the life of a philosopher. Often, he is busy with politics, and starts to his feet and says and does whatever comes into his head, and, if he is emulous of any who is a warrior, off he is in that direction, or of a man of business, once more in that. His life is neither law nor order, and this distracted existence he terms joy and bliss and freedom, and so on he goes. End quote. Plato thinks democracy doesn't work. Why doesn't it work? It's from a very logical way of thinking. Democracy doesn't work because men do not work. Most people are not interested in running a democracy. They are undisciplined and just want to be amused. This is the democratic man. A person can break down a pro and con of democracy. If you want to see one that I actually compiled for the purposes of the show, I'll have one on my Facebook page. I think it's important to look at because we don't think in terms of inherent benefits and disadvantages to different governmental forms. Some of the things we hate about politics are just inherent in democracy, such as uninformed voters. Spoiler alert, they never disappear. Plato had an allegory that helps to explain things. It begins like this. Behold, human beings living in an underground den, which has a mouth open towards the light and reaching all along the den. Here they have been from their childhood, and have their legs and necks chained so they cannot move, and can only see before them, being prevented by the chains from turning round their heads. Above and behind them, a fire is blazing at a distance. And between the fire and the prisoners, there is a raised way, and you will see, if you look, a low wall built along the way, like the screen which marionette players have in front of them, one which they show the puppets. 
What's happening here in Plato's imagery is that there are people who have been living in a cave their entire life, and from the opening in the cave, light spills into it. The men are chained such that they cannot turn around and look at the light directly. All they see is the wall in front of them, where the light pours. And behind them, there are marionette players. There are people who cast images from the light onto the wall, so they see shadows of things against the wall. And they believe these shadows are real life. There is nothing more real than that. The marionette player in Plato's story is the media in modern terms, keeping people wrongly informed or focused on issues that are just not important. You can apply the marionette players to a bunch of different categories as well, but they are most frequently, I believe, applied to the modern media. Something very important in this is the part of the hero's journey. You've seen this in movies a thousand times. It goes like this. The hero begins in a dystopian place. The hero stumbles out of the cave of darkness and sees the truth. The light from the sun is the truth. It initially hurts the hero because his eyes are used to the darkness of the cave. But when he can see, it is a beautiful outside. Now, can he just continue along with his life and be happy he found it? No. Maybe to his dismay, but no, he can't. His people are in the cave. This is the story of a lot of heroes throughout history. This is the story of Jesus, of Buddha, of Martin Luther King Jr., and countless heroes on the big screen as well. The hero returns. The hero can't see in the darkness anymore. He's used to the light of truth. So the darkness and lies are no longer his way. He runs into rocks. He looks like an idiot to his people. Why can't he see what they can easily see? He tries to get them to leave the darkness. He tells them of the marionette player. They think that he's so crazy that nobody believes him. That's how the story ends. But a caveat. I believe the story implies that the hero will be killed by the people in the cave. Why? Because if he doesn't stop insisting on what he knows to be true, and they refuse to believe him, they will tire of him, and some action will be taken. I think Plato would expect the hero to die because of his experience with Socrates. Additionally, when people preach a radically different truth, people do not respond well. For example, see the heroes I mentioned a minute earlier. Jesus, Martin Luther King Jr., etc. They all die. That is the hero's journey. Another lesson here is that if you're going to tell people the truth, you better make them laugh. Or they'll probably murder you. There's some psychology at play here as well. People don't change their beliefs just because you can prove them wrong. In fact, they tend to hold on to them tighter. So how does the story relate to democracy? The voters in a democracy are the ones who can't see and are chained. Anyone who escapes is disbelieved because of the establishment. It illustrates why it is that people can't change unless they listen to the hero. But they don't. Sometimes, maybe, they do, we can hope, but the picture Plato painted was a bleak one. Plato had one more very useful analogy. Quoting from the Republic again, Imagine then a ship or a fleet in which there is a captain who is taller and stronger than any of the crew, but who is a little deaf and has a similar infirmity in sight, and whose knowledge of navigation is not much better. The sailors are quarreling with one another about his steering. Everyone is of the opinion that he has a right to steer, though he has never learned the art of navigation. They don't understand that a true captain must pay attention to the seasons of the year, the sky, the stars, the wind, and all that pertains to his craft if he's really to be the ruler of a ship. And they don't believe that there is any craft which would enable him to determine how he should steer the ship, whether the others want him to or not, or any possibility of mastering this alleged craft or of practicing it at the same time as the craft of navigation. Don't you think that the true captain will be called a real stargazer, a babbler, and a good-for-nothing?
The sailors won't respect the captain. The voters won't respect a true statesman who will do what is right, because they won't be able to see what's right because of the cave. And, additionally, because of what Plato thought of the average democratic man, they have no devotion to the truth. They won't actively pursue it. So they are that much more susceptible to the cave. Quoting again. The sailors throng about the captain, begging and praying him to commit the helm to them. And if at any time they do not prevail, but others are preferable to them, they kill the others or throw them overboard. And having first chained up the noble captain's senses with drink or some narcotic drug, they mutiny and take possession of the ship and make free with the stores, thus eating and drinking. They proceed on their voyage in such a manner as can be expected of them. Him, who is their partisan and cleverly aids them in their plot for getting the ship out of the captain's hands, into their own, whether by force or persuasion, they compliment with the name of sailor, pilot, able seaman, and the abuser in the other sort of man, whom they call a good-for-nothing, but that the good pilot must pay attention to the year, and seasons, and sky, and stars, and wind, and whatever else belongs to his art. If he intends to be really qualified for the command of a ship, and that he must and will be the steerer, whether other people like it or not, the possibility of this union of authority with the steerer's art has never seriously entered into their thoughts or been made part of their calling. And there it is. Plato was not a fan of democracy or of oligarchy. He thought they were both fraught with horrible things, and they would both lead ultimately to just bad outcomes. Logically, because the inherent system in both simply led to bad rule. The way to avoid the serious shortcomings of democracy, as well as oligarchy, in Plato's view, is the installation of a government of technocrats. They'll make all relevant and necessary decisions on the basis of objective analysis and unbiased deliberations. Basically, Plato wants a government run by professionals. So if someone is running the economy, he would want economists to run the economy. If someone is running the military, he would want people trained in the military to run that, and so on and so forth. Since neither the demos nor ordinary politicians can be expected to acquire this sort of competence, it will have to be a philosopher king that guarantees justice public welfare, and peace. See, Plato didn't think that justice, public welfare, and peace were at all possible in a continuous manner, so over a long period of time, if the system of government was anything other than a philosopher king. There's been a lot of historical oppositions to democracy as well. I'm going to quote at length now from one of my sources because I simply cannot say this any better than they do. Quote, Historically, opposition to democracy has always come from the political right, from monarchists, aristocrats, or economically privileged classes that feared for their disproportioned wealth and power. Ideological conservatives, too, tended to have strong reservations with regard to popular rule. The Catholic Church, for example, used to be most closely allied with anti-democratic forces, such as standing armies or privileged landowning classes. But such opposition to democratic government has basically been in retreat since the successes of the American and French revolutions, temporary reversals notwithstanding. Historically, the ideal of democracy has been the norm, not the exception, at least in theory. Many theoreticians, particularly those on the left, argue that the distortion or abrogation of the democratic process is due to the brainwashing and manipulation of the masses by the media and other institutions, particularly, however, by TV. Being kept busy by making a living during most of the day, most people are too exhausted during their time off to do much else except watch television programs that make no intellectual demands on them. And the ruling elites, so the argument goes, have no interest in changing the situation in any event. They would not like an alert and informed citizenry that could read budgets and ask critical questions. They have, on the contrary, always had an interest in keeping the majority of people in a state of 
benightedness, in the same way in which slaveholders once had an interest in keeping their slaves in a state of illiteracy, ignorance, and thus helplessness. And since most of the important media are either owned or controlled by wealthy and otherwise privileged groups, it's next to impossible to really enlighten the masses, to liberate them from their false consciousness. It will only be in certain crisis situations, such as times of unpopular wars or severe economic depressions, people will wake up from their troglodyte torpor and begin to seriously inform themselves. Without such a crisis, however, the stranglehold of manipulative media on the minds of the voters is too strong to be broken. The reduction of potential voters to an apathetic and poorly informed mass of television consumers works too well for the privilege to be seriously questioned by anyone in power. The manufacturers of false consciousness are forever making sure that the demos will not be able to use the democratic process effectively on their own behalf and for their own advantage. Lenin argued in his influential What is to be done? that under certain conditions it will be necessary for a tightly organized, well-trained, and philosophically schooled vanguard party of professional revolutionaries to take over the leadership of the workers and the political organizations in order to stage a successful uprising against the capitalist system. To sum up, for most of Western history, the anti-democracy came from the right, both the monarchy and the aristocrats. Additionally, the Catholic Church sided heavily with them. That is the reason the refrain in the French Revolution was that men will never be free until the last king is strangled with the entrails of the last priest. That is the meaning. The priests and the monarchy allied to prevent democracy. The Protestant Revolution and the beginning of capitalism severed the power of the Catholic Church and a monarchy. There were some of the strong reasons of the decrease in power of those ancient institutions. In the past 100 years, the left has developed its own anti-democracy. The left finds itself in opposition to modern capitalism, and it wants socialism, communism, or just generally reformed capitalism. How do you get that with the average democratic man? Well, now you're back to Lenin. Lenin got his ideas for the vanguard party from Plato. He got his ideas that the average people were not smart enough, or were not involved enough, to be well informed. That you needed a strong arm to coerce them to do what was needed. Indeed, this is one of the divisions in communism. Some believe the revolution must come from a grassroots change, and others believe that there must be a vanguard party to force people into the change, because people are essentially too stupid to know what's good for them. It's a platonic difference through and through. Moving to more American thinkers, James Madison maintained, quote, A people who mean to be their own governors must arm themselves with the power knowledge gives. A popular government without popular information or the means of acquiring it is but a prologue to a farce or a tragedy, or perhaps both. End quote. Madison meant here that there are certain prerequisites for a democracy to function well. Plato would definitely agree with that. An informed electorate is absolutely essential. But Plato thinks that's impossible. Madison seemed not to have thought it was impossible, but education was what was needed to work towards it. In a similar note, John Adams said, quote, Posterity, you will never know how much it costs the present generation to preserve your freedom. I hope you make good use of it. End quote. John Adams definitely aware of vast potential for future generations to throw away democracy. Now the second man in our drama here, Frederick the Great. He was an enlightened despot. In defining the system of government, I find no better way than to describe it from another one of my sources. Quote, Politics makes strange bedfellows is a truism that has been sustained over the test of time. Whether it's Republicans and Democrats making deals in Congress, or Joseph and Pharaoh ruling in Egypt in the Old Testament, the nature of politics and the needs of the state can often require an odd mix of characters. 
Such was the case in the 18th century, when several monarchs of Central and Western Europe adopted and implemented ideals of the Enlightenment, an intellectual movement which by and large denied that monarchy is with the basis of political power. Enlightened despotism and its equal, enlightened absolutism, are terms historians use to describe the policies of several 18th century European monarchs. They are despots, or absolutists, because they continually work to centralize all the power within their nation in the monarchy, at the expense of provincial nobles and national or provincial assemblies. Somewhat paradoxically, many of these despots also embraced the Enlightenment, an 18th century intellectual trends that espoused rational thought, empiricism, and individual rights and liberties. These monarchs attempted to improve their states through the personal implementation of Enlightenment ideals while at the same time maintaining, or even enhancing, monarchical control over the affairs of the state. So that's what Enlightened despotism is. In short, it was the belief that you don't need democracy, but at the same time people should have individual rights. That's why we turn to Frederick the Great. Frederick the Great's father was commonly known as the Soldier King. He created a large and powerful army, and managed very well his treasury, and also developed a strong centralized government. As Frederick grew, his taste for music, literature, and French culture clashed with his father's militarism. He was beaten by his father often, and was often humiliated by him. Despite his father, he had a secret 3,000-volume set of poetry, Greek and Roman classics, and French philosophy. Plato, I think, would have liked Frederick. When he came of age, Frederick was forced into the army and learned military science and government against his will. When Frederick turned 18, he ran away from his father with his best friend. They tried to run to England, where his maternal grandfather was king. They were caught, and his father had his best friend beheaded in front of him. His father set up an arranged marriage. It's possible that Frederick was gay, and then his best friend he ran away with was actually his lover. In which case, how much more devastating to have your father behead your lover in front of you at a young age. The guilt he would feel either way would be intense. Frederick never showed a real interest in women. That could have also just been a result of his father beheading his best friend and then being forced into a marriage. With no way out, perhaps he just withdrew. It's impossible to tell. When Frederick took the throne, he is one of the excellent examples of a philosopher king. His life shares a similarity with Plato in that the state killed someone extremely close to him, so he was certainly aware that the state could cause immense suffering. Quoting now from one of my sources, Half-hearted attempts at enlightened rule failed in France. Wholesale embrace of the Enlightenment succeeded wildly in Prussia. Frederick II of Prussia, often referred to as Frederick the Great, was king of Prussia from 1740 to 1786. He gained his moniker largely due to battlefield successes. He invaded Silesia in 1740 and retained the territory throughout the War of Austrian Succession and the ensuing Seven Years' War, despite facing a larger, better-funded alliance of France, Russia, and Austria. In addition, he was an avid reformer. Though he demanded absolute power in the affairs of the state, he famously proclaimed himself the first servant of the state, and tried to rule with a mind towards what was best for Prussia, and not just himself. Indeed, Frederick embraced Enlightenment ideals by granting Prussians further freedoms. He granted universal religious toleration throughout Prussian territory, and he even granted the press a degree of freedom of speech. In addition, Frederick expanded individual rights within his realm, abolished torture, and sped up legal proceedings, granting his citizens a certain amount of due process. He further improved the legal system through increasing the training and knowledge required to be a judge. Frederick enhanced the country's infrastructure as well, building roads and bridges, 
and enriching the provincial backwaters through agricultural reforms meant to improve crop yield and farm organization. His reforms of the Prussian educational system were not only intended to improve the quality of Prussian schools, but also expand enrollment. When Frederick died after 46 years on the throne, he left his beloved Prussia as arguably the strongest nation in Central Europe. So you see, Frederick the Great is exactly what Plato would want in a philosopher king. It's why I've entitled this episode A Tale of Two Men. Plato, yearning after a philosopher king and being unable to find someone who fit his description. And a long time later, Frederick the Great comes along and pretty much fits the description. But he's the exception to the rule. It appears that for philosopher kings to exist, they need to suffer in some way, history would suggest. They need to come to see the state as a terrible burden to rule and not want it in order to be qualified to rule. Personal experience is the teacher in that, but also a certain philosopher mindset and servant mindset is needed. For every example of a righteous king, there are 10 or 20 despots who fail their country. Here is the paradox of government. Thomas Hobbes, a British philosopher, said that all people are inherently violent, corrupt, and untrustworthy. That's why we need government. But government is made up of people. You see the problem. If people are untrustworthy, then how can government be the answer if it is full of people? There's a larger discussion available here. Are people inherently good? What does good mean? If people are not good, how can we change? Or can we change at all? Generally speaking, modern society is largely split on this question along these lines. Theistic thought says goodness is obedience to the law of God. Humans are therefore not good because we cannot maintain the law perfectly. Secular thought defines good as, generally speaking again, acting reasonably, or popularly called the law of not being a dick. In secular thought, if someone acts badly, such as the CEO of a company that abuses the environment and steals from people, it isn't necessarily his fault, it's the circumstances. The capitalistic environment forces him into it. The theistic thought may generally agree that circumstance impacts what he does, but adds that he does have a choice. He doesn't have to give in to the environment around him. Again, I'm generalizing broadly, but these are the different stances people take, and different systems of thought take. Adam Smith, one of the first espousers of capitalist philosophy, said that capitalism needs morality alongside it. If chasing the dollar is all there is, we will all suffer. So morality and ethics are absolutely necessary with capitalism. We must all be moral persons. Part of the difficulty today is that a growing amount of the population not only doesn't know what it means to be a moral person, but we're losing the common moral framework that we had in the past. The goalposts are moved. There are so many different answers to the question that the question itself is too tiresome to ask anymore for many people. I won't discuss this deep question much further except to say that we're forced to end with the answer that all government is imperfect. I think we can all agree on that. If we could have a Frederick the Great rule, giving him unconditional power would be fine as long as it wouldn't be abused. But it seems that monarchy is always a rule of the dice. If you can guarantee that every time you'll get a Frederick the Great to rule your country and you'll have great improvements in everything... Of course you would take that. I think most people would voluntarily hand over their right to vote to someone who would manage the country perfectly. But again, it's a roll of the dice. You can just as easily get a Ivan the Terrible or a Nero. The problem with democracy is well known. An uninformed electorate that is easily swayed by sophists, by politicians, and by increasing division on the lines of income, race, ethnicity, gender, religion, and more. There's a breaking point in democracy. A relevant quote here is again from John Adams. Remember, a democracy never lasts long. It soon wastes, exhausts, and murders itself. There never was a democracy yet that did not commit suicide. And one more quote from the 1950s. A democracy cannot exist as a permanent form of government. 
It can only exist until the majority discovers it can vote itself largesse out of the public treasury. After that, the majority always votes for the candidate promising the most benefits, with the result of the democracy collapsing because of the loose fiscal policy ensuing, always to be followed by a dictatorship and then a monarchy. So an extremely divided electorate leads to people getting so tired of it that a strongman ends up in charge. Princeton and other leading universities have recently come out with different studies that show that the U.S. is currently an oligarchy and not a democracy. Generally speaking, the way they measured that was they would take important issues and measure it by what the majority of Americans want and then measure it accordingly to what the rich and powerful want. And like clockwork, what the rich and powerful wanted closely reflected policy than what the Americans wanted. That's one of the reasons that outsider campaigns are so popular right now and will probably continue to be in the near future. We would do well to remember that the only king who will truly be a good king is a philosopher king. And history since Plato shows us how rare they are. Thanks for listening. Enjoyed the show? Tell a friend. It really helps. If you want to get in contact with Joe Newton, you can reach him at facebook.com slash historical intentions.